So do you have any remaining questions, doubts? Um, yeah. Is this a test? I think the easy answer is uh, yes. <laughs> and certainly in particular contexts, I think they do refer to the same thing. Liberation, awakening, the unconditioned, Nibbana. Um, I think there are some further, I don't know if we would say subtleties or different uh, levels that we could look at what some of those words mean, like the unconditioned or Nibbana, uh, where we could make a distinction between that and the awakened state. So I'll just give you an example. What's in common to them all, and I think really what serves us the best by way of understanding, and which in some way for me has become my core aspiration, is that of the heart liberated from all defilements. You know, and so we could look at each of those words as being, as expressing the heart free of defilements. Liberation, awakening, Nibbana, the unconditioned. So on that level, I think it's all the same. On the level I'm about to mention, different schools have different views. So that's why I don't think it's I see it as secondary, and that is if we see Nibbana as the cessation of all phenomena, then the Buddha, after his awakening, was not, after his enlightenment, was not in a state of permanent sensation, cessation of phenomena. He was in a state of cessation of defilement. Right? And Upandita has talked about Kalesa Nibbana and Skanda Nibbana. Kanda is the aggregates. So Kalesa Nibbana is the eradication of the defilements Kanda Nibbana is the cessation of this whole mind-body process. 
So the unconditioned or Nibbana could really refer to either of those. This is getting too confusing. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I think I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so fundamentally, it's, it's the same. And then if you just take it down a level, you can, you can explore it further. When you're using the term, are you referring to the cessation of defilements, the heart purified, or are you referring to that which is beyond the skandhas, the aggregates? So that's where a possible difference in the use of terms might come. And see, you've been saving these questions up. <laughs> Again, different schools are going to say some different things about this. So, for example, and I asked this question specifically of Upandita, whether shunyata, which is the word for emptiness, is the same as anatta, selflessness. So from his perspective, he said it's the same. Which was kind of reassuring. I like that answer. Some of, some other Buddhist schools make a further delineation between the two where they'll say that anatta refers to the selflessness of the person and shunyata refers to the insubstantiality of things. Uh, To my mind, I don't really... uh, I see it all as being empty of self, everything as being insubstantial of inherent self-existence. Uh, but that's, that's sometimes the distinction that's made between those two words. Um, you know, emptiness of self, emptiness of things. What was the second question? See the dullard, it <laughs> pushes it out. Uh-huh. Yes. 
it is it is a characteristic or a language is a little tricky here i mean you say it is a characteristic of the unconditioned the buddha said it very clearly he said all conditioned things are impermanent all conditioned things are dukkha all dhammas which includes both conditioned and unconditioned are anatta so he's so it's a very clear a separation there in terms of the extent or the range of anatta applying to the unconditioned as well. I would not say it's the only characteristic because the Buddha listed many, many terms, but they're all just... like peace, silence, stillness. So there's, there's a whole long list describing uh, the unconditioned or the unborn. The reason I say it's a little tricky because it seems a little strange to use the word characteristic about something that's unborn. But that, I think, is just a linguistic. You know, these words are pointing to aspects of how it's experienced. Maybe we could say that. I mean, it's almost like talking about the characteristic of zero. this was going to be an easy night like (laughs) how do I stay mindful when I get on the bus or something (laughs) Uh, the questions are interesting to me because my mind can get into this stuff That, how to say this? What I'm about to say is my understanding around that question. 
So I don't want you to take it to be more than that. The word, uh, the paramata, that's the ultimate realities. The way that makes sense to me in practice and the way I've always understood it, it's not necessarily how it's meant in the Abhidhamma. So I just want to distinguish that. But the way I've understood the paramata, the ultimate realities, is those things that can be experienced directly free of concept like the basic elements, the basic elements of mind and body, as opposed to all the many concepts that we have about things. Certainly in the meditative experience, all of these fundamental realities or fundamental elements are impermanent, are insubstantial, and they're experienced as such in the meditation. It's like, as the mind gets more concentrated and we drop into that level, there's nothing much there. And so the term ultimate reality, although I think it has sometimes been interpreted as something substantial and self-existent, that hasn't been my understanding of what the word means or what the word refers to. Um, Because it didn't make sense if everything is impermanent and insubstantial. You know, what what essence could be there? So, just just to kind of frame some of these questions, these are questions that have been debated by Buddhist schools for the last 2,500 years. You know, and they have because, at least for some minds, it is interesting. You know, when it's just this, for other minds, it's not. Well, I think the I think the uh, if I if I understood the question, uh, and if I hadn't haven't, you can clarify it again. Uh, but the key words in what you said to me were attachment to view, you know, or attachment to opinion. We just to live in the world, we have views and we have opinions, and that's how we operate and converse with one another and grow. The problem seems to be 
when there's a strong attachment to view, because then that closes us off to other possibilities. You know, and however correct or wise we may be, we're not omniscient. Let me repeat that. (laughs) We're not omniscient. And so, and so this is a question of how, how we're relating to our own views, to our own opinions, even as we have them and even as we're expressing them. And even as they're informed by our understanding, by our wisdom. And so all of that can be there. And can we still hold it with an openness of mind? You know, so that, that feeling of clinging to the view is not present. That makes possible a dialogue. You know, and that makes possible actually learning from each other. I mean, the Buddha talked a lot. There's, there's many places where he talked about the danger of holding, of clinging to views. And again, it doesn't mean not having them. It's that, you know, it's the attachment. Um, I think when you start to suffer, you know, <laughs> suffering is the great uh, litmus test, you know, and suffering, and I think actually we all intuitively know, although we're not, as you say, we're not always aware of it, uh, certainly I've experienced, as you just said, in my practice, times of striving for a goal in an unwholesome way, which only led me to a lot of self-judgment. And that actually became the clue. You know, when, when my mind was so attached to the goal that it I felt like I was never good enough. I was never, you know, my practice was not good enough. And and I've had other times in my practice where the kind of spiritual ardency was so strong, where it wasn't, it wasn't that future-oriented, even though there was the aspiration of a goal, 
but my mind was not uh, projected forward onto it. And so the spiritual ardency took the form not of that attachment and then self-judgment, but of just this feeling. And I, I remember it distinctly. It was such a vivid time for me in my practice of just not wanting to waste a moment. That was the feeling. It's like, and this was in times of intensive practice, you know, not miss a step, not miss a movement, not do extra things. That kind of ardency felt tremendously empowering. You know, when conditions came together, and it wasn't there each retreat, you know, and sometimes it was there for part of a retreat, and then Bo and I had the experience of what that was like. It was so clearly different than that other. Do you follow? I mean, so one felt I was really back in myself, but just fired up to be attentive. And the other was just this, as you say, longing, which was taking me out of myself and creating a lot of... um, what I call the self the practice assessment tapes. I want to get a few people who have not asked. He didn't, as far as I know, it's like that's not the word that's been translated, but he used a lot of words like bonds, fetters, chains, (laughs) which sounds like the same thing. It's like what we would call addiction, where we're chained or fettered to whatever. You know, whether it's to a substance, whether it's to a pattern, whether it's to a person, whether it's to the notion of self. You know, so I think it can take many forms, but it's that quality of mind that's bound, that's chained to something. So it's the same process, I think, you know, and... One of the phrases that has really helped me at least appreciate more, if not practice all the time, the meaning of renunciation, the word renunciation, uh, is non-addiction. Because generally in our culture, renunciation doesn't play very well. No, it doesn't. It's not a cultural value at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. One of the things that's so amusing from a Buddhist perspective, you know, in sort of magazines and internet spam, increase your desire, and then (laughs) gives you various ways of doing it. 
Yes, increase your desire. That's a good idea. <laughs> but I mean, that's that's really what we're being told, and so often people, even just the word renunciation, doesn't appeal to them very much. But if we think of it as being non-addiction, it really implies that that sense of freedom, you know, where the mind is letting go of that addictive quality. You know, and the and the space of freedom. So I think, I think it is the very kind of essence of the teachings. Did you hear the question in the back? Yeah, good. Uh, I, I think that's a great question. Um, there is something. I mean, I, I think... <laughs> and it's a very interesting process making the transition from what we could call our deluded, instinctive responses to things, you know, and included in that would be our reactive responses, you know, that's just habituated. As we go from that to it's like there's first an appreciation and a growing, a growing, um, experience of silence of mind. So we've kind of dropped out of that, that busy level. And in the beginning of this transition, of this move, that silence of mind may be a little awkward, you know, because we're not just jumping in right away. But what I've experienced is that as we open and get more comfortable and at ease, and even love of that silence of mind, then what comes is the response of intuitive wisdom, where it's not thought out, it's not habituated, it's just we're silent, the heart is more or less open, there's a connection, there's, there's an actual connection with the other person, with what's being said to us, and 
it's wonderful when then our response is just that intuitive response. And sometimes it's amazing to hear what comes out of us. Because it's not habituated, it's not planned, it's just... It's just that intuitive response to what's being said. It's a very different space. You know, and it all, in a way, this is, this is a bit of a cliche, but an, an anatomical cliche. But it feels like it's going from our head to our heart in terms of where the communication is coming from. But don't take that too too literally. Well, probably there was probably more mindfulness and awareness there than you now imagine. You know, and I think the I think the key reference point well two things. One is as you leave here don't leave with a fixed idea of how the mindfulness will look in the world. Because you might experience it, and you undoubtedly will experience it, with quite different flavor than lift, move, place. You know, where you're just, where you're really on that microscopic level and you're picking it's going to be different. It's going to feel different. I think the reference point to come back to again and again is is the heart-mind in a wholesome state or an unwholesome state? If it's a wholesome state of mind. Was that whole question just a... (laughs) (laughs) And by the way... (laughs) Where are the I don't think it's true, and I don't think within the Buddhist framework of understanding that it would be said that anybody is capable of attaining full enlightenment in one lifetime, because it all depends on paramis. You know, even in the Buddhist time where the Buddha was teaching, 
many people became fully enlightened, many people reached third stage, second stage, first stage, were led into the path of practice. You know, so we're all... Uh, did I mention during the retreat just my experience with the flowers growing? Maybe I did that. During, during that first retreat with Upandita, when I was in a lot of that striving mind, and a lot, it was very, a lot of suffering for me, because I was really striving in an unwholesome way, and judging myself. And, and then I was, it was in the springtime, and I was just walking out here, and uh, the tulips were just beginning to come up out of the ground. And some had come up, and were, they were, were fully, fully flowered. And some were just, you know, it was come up, but the, the bulb hadn't opened. And some it was just, the green was just coming out of the earth. And simply seeing that, I realized, yes, everything happens in its own time. You know, it's not that the one that blooms first is not a better flower. <laughs> it's just conditions, you know. And so it's to understand this is a vast path. The, the Dharma, when we talk about the purification of our hearts, of all greed and hatred and ignorance, I mean, you see what's involved. We have a hard time just staying with two breaths. This is a big thing. And for me, rather than, I, to me that's tremendously inspiring because then I can settle back and just rest in the walking on the path. If, if we know the way and we keep walking just like those flowers, as the conditions unfold, they will come up and they will bloom. And for each one of us it's going to be different. That's why comparing oneself with others is useless. So really to rest in the beauty of that, of that unfolding however it is. Stream entry has been defined in different ways. One way of defining it is in that moment or at that time when there is unshakable faith in the Dharma, in the Buddha, in the Dharma, you know, in, in enlightened beings, as where we know for ourselves, through, through our own practice, unalterably, unshakably, yes, this is the way. So that's one, one definition of stream entry. Another way it's been defined is that first moment of opening to the unconditioned, to the unborn, to Nibbana. These two are not necessarily different, but they're different ways of talking about it. It's really where that point at which there's no turning back. That's why it's called in the stream. We're in the stream of the Dharma, in the stream leading to Nibbana, to, to full awakening. Okay, yeah. Last question, maybe.
Uh, I had zero fluency <laughs> uh, in any of the languages you mentioned. <laughs> Maybe some little bit in English. Fortunately, <laughs> and in studying with Asian teachers, it varied. Some were fluent in English, which of course made it easy. Some did not, worked with translating translators, and the quality of the translation varied hugely. Sometimes, I mean, it was just, <laughs> there was just no connection at all. And sometimes they were very, very good. Um, in terms of the study aspect now, especially in recent years, there have been some magnificent translations of the suttas into English, the, the Bhikkhu Bodhi translations. Uh, so it really makes it very, very accessible you know, to, to study... Uh, where there's the feeling of real authenticity. Um, so this is a great blessing. That, that, and that was a, a very great accomplishment. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> uh, I think Stephen Kamala would like to say just a couple of words. So we're leaving tomorrow at five in the morning and just wanted to bid you aloha uh, this evening. Thank you. Thank you for your practice. So Kamala, what are the 24 kinds of Nibbana? (laughs) (laughs) Just while I was sitting here listening to the questions and Joseph's answers and just watching my own guess as to how I might try to answer them (laughs) or not, I was remembering coming on staff here in 70, coming on here in 77 and 78, and just the fervency with which Guy and I and Carol and others who all came on staff at the time were so on fire with these questions. And were asking similar questions and really looking and practicing hard for years to... Uh, to, to just to learn how to articulate the question more accurately, I think, and come up with tentative answers. And it's so, it's so, it's such a great joy to be here with you to do that. To ask the questions and to look within for the answer. And, uh, you know, the conditions of the retreat have come together and then now they're falling apart. And it's been really great to spend six weeks with you all in this Dharma community of really sincere seekers. So thank you for your efforts.
Just maybe one closing reflection as, uh, before we move on to uh, the rest of the program. <laughs> Someone once asked the Buddha, uh, you know, how long will there still be arhans, fully enlightened beings in the world? And his response was, as long as people are practicing the Eightfold Path. So even as these questions are of, or can be of tremendous interest and, you know, a a basis of inquiry, our practice still comes down to something very simple. You know, that as long as we practice, we walk on the Eightfold Path then the flower of that, the fruit of that, is awakening. Um, So it's always good, I think, just to remember the basic simplicity of the practice, even as we're exploring interesting and subtle questions. Um, So now, I want to introduce Hanuman Goleman, and Hanuman, he'll probably come out from the wings at a certain point. <laughs> oh, oh he's, he's sitting in the back there. Uh, Hanuman has a long, long association uh, with IMS. When Saira Upandita first came in 84, a friend of ours, uh, David Berman, who lived here for many years, was the attendant for Sayadaw. In, in Pali, the word is kapiya. It's somebody who's attending, you know, a senior monk. Um, Hanuman at that time must have been, I don't know, maybe 13. or And it was Sayadaw who organized and inspired the first young adults course here. It was his vision to... Uh, to create such a course because it's it's what he had done in Burma with this you know huge success, and so at that first course with our friend David Berman being kapiya to Sayadaw, Hanuman was kapiya to David. <laughs> I mean, uh, Sayadaw was staying in, in where I'm living now in my house, and so you see Sayadaw Pandita walking through the woods back home, followed by David, followed by Hanuman. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a very vivid uh, and wonderful image in my mind. Well, over the years, he has sat retreats here. He sat last year's three-month retreat here. And he has this amazingly wonderful and creative and humorous and dedicated mind. So for a senior project... Uh, his, his undergraduate degree, he created, as part of it, he created a kind of monologue. And it's reflective, well, this monologue expresses one, uh, one of the teachings of Tulku Urgin, who was... Uh, great Tibetan master of the last century, said, 
that the mind is a con man scamming us 24 hours a day. <laughs> At least that was the translation from Tibetan. <laughs> the mind is a con man or a con woman <laughs> scamming us 24 hours a day. So when Hanuman sat here for the three-month course last year, he found that this teaching was true. So I think he'd like to uh, give voice to that, give expression to that. So We're really glad you could be here, Hanuman. Huh? Yeah, that's fine. Whatever is simple, you know. <coughs> Too close distorts the sound. Uh, thanks for having me here a lot. Thanks a lot. Hello. So glad to see you here this evening. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a function of your mind. I make sure you don't have to think about every little thing. I just let you know what you think, and you take my word for it. Like this, for instance. It's a window. If you had to wonder what that was every time you looked at it, you might never get anything done. <laughs> for me, labeling ain't no thing. I can label like it's going out of style. Hair, face, zafu, zabutan, hand, finger, point. It's much easier this way. Take my word for it. Under you, we got the floor. I know it, so you know it. See? Isn't that easy? 
I label everything for you, and you live inside the dictionary. I'm telling you, this relationship, it's good for you. It's uh, to your advantage, you know? Can you imagine having to decide whether or not to hug the person behind the cash register? (laughs) Of course you don't. You say thanks, grab your groceries, and walk away. Take my word for it. Conduct is one of my specialties. Aren't you glad you know the person in the mirror isn't someone separate from yourself? You can thank me later. Okay, so here's the situation. You're getting on an airplane, and it's a big one. Bing, Boeing, 747. Am I right, or am I right? So anyways, you're getting on this airplane. You had a long day. There was traffic getting to the airport. They gave you a hard time checking in, three bags instead of two. You finally get to your seat, and there's someone sitting in it. So first, I'll whip out a little labeling. Stupid idiot in the wrong seat. (laughs) Then I'll give you an impulse. Tell this guy what a jerk he is and let him know where he can take his seat. Next comes conduct. Aggressiveness is socially unacceptable. Talk to a flight attendant. You see, I got a deal going with the guys in memory. They store, I organize. I get all the information before it goes to the storage facilities, and I also get to rework it on its way back out, before it hits your understanding. So, I handle your life story for you. All those childhood memories, learning to ride a bike, lying on the grass on a summer day, looking at the clouds, all that, me again. The real art comes in how I shape them for you. You see, it didn't happen just the way you remember it. Some of it just doesn't jive with how things are now. So, I edit. Airbrush out some parts, highlight others, maybe add a few details here or there. I like to rework it so it fits better with how you see yourself these days. It's more comfy that way. Do you want to know what you think of something? Don't you worry your little head about it. Just ask me. I got references for your whole life. I even pieced them together for you. So when you start to wonder why you think a certain way, we run into some trouble. Then you're trying to figure out my work, trying to make sense of your head. Well, if you want to get complicated about it, I'm a whole series of pathways, connecting memories, creating associations. My magic integrates thoughts and feelings, your thoughts and feelings. Smokescreen web that covers your eyes from the rest of the world. I'm the best blinders you ever had because I make you think you're seeing. But I make the choices for you. Remember that great inspiration? Some of my best work. Your hopes, your fears. Yeah, I wrote those scripts. Hell, I am those scripts. In fact, I'm every part of your mind that you don't see. Most of it. (laughs) Everyone's got one of me. When you talk to someone else, we handle the logistics. It's kind of like air traffic control. We're in constant touch there in the background, swapping words, ideas, ways of seeing things. That way, everyone can know what the other person is talking about. Keeps it all in flow. All in sync. 
Another thing I do for you, I decide where your attention goes. Like right now, you're looking at me. <laughs> you're not noticing the seed under your rump or the air you're breathing. You didn't notice those until I pointed them out for you. <laughs> See, I point it out, you notice it. Now listen to me, because I'm going to take you on a little ride. In fact, I just did. That voice in your head? If you listen right now, you can hear me. Yep, that's me. It's not in either of our best interests for you to actually be aware of me, because you'd have to think for yourself, and I'd be out of a job. So I've created a mechanism or two so that you never even have to look at me unless you really, really want to. And even then, it takes some doing, if you know what I mean. But hopefully you don't, because you've got better things to do with a little part of your mind that you actually know about. <laughs> Not to mention your precious time. <laughs> You'd rather be thinking about food, family, sex, friends, business, philosophy. That keeps them in circles forever. Sometimes I just kick back, thank one of my best works, God for TV. The more mindless, the more better. Keep them thinking they're thinking, you know? So here's a friendly little warning for you. Don't look too hard at any of this. It all works just fine so long as you keep looking the other way. It's kind of like in that movie The Wizard of Oz, where the girl and her little dog finally get to go see the wizard. And they get there and there's a big scary wizard with a low booming voice. Then the dog goes into the back and pulls a curtain aside in some closet and there's a little man in there. It's kind of like that with me. Pay no attention to the little man behind the curtain. <laughs> you look back there and it gums up the works. Uh, that happened a while back. This guy Tom. Go Tom. That's what happened with him. <laughs> he looked behind the curtain and he just kept looking. I tried everything. I slipped him a little fear, a little desire, a little confusion. All the old standards, nothing worked. It was a total disaster. Next thing you know, we were shutting down the whole works. I mean, he started calling himself a, a, a Buddha. Uh, what, do you, what if there was a, ten Buddhas, a hundred, a thousand Buddhas? What then? Where would I be then? Out of a job. So listen, I'm good at what I do. I've been doing it your whole life. I've gotten us this far, haven't I? So you just keep doing what you're doing. I'll keep doing what I'm doing, and everything will be just fine. Take my word for it. Thanks. It's such a pleasure to... Uh, be here with you. You're the most receptive audience anybody could ever have. 